Hello, and welcome back to a chilly December edition of the Royal Horticultural Society's Gardening Podcast. Today, we're sheltering from the bitter cold outside to hear about the state-of-the-art new science laboratory that's being built here at Wisley as part of our massive project to invest in the future of horticulture. Plus, beautiful birds in the most unlikely places. We join an RSPB expert to hear how you can spot and support our feathered friends in towns and gardens throughout the winter, even when you're doing your Christmas shopping. I'm Tony Dickerson from the Garden Advisory Team, based here at Wisley. This is a tricky time of year for gardeners, with the rush to protect tender plants from frost and the cold winds. The plants here at Wisley in the exotic tropical beds have all been protected, including bananas and tree ferns, wrapped up for the winter. In my allotment, well, there's not much going on at the moment, doing the last of sort of tidying up before the New Year break, and really checking that that brassicas and so on are well netted against the pigeons, who otherwise will have a Christmas and New Year feast themselves, and just generally adding organic matter, manure and so on, as a mulch over the surface, and that will be readily broken down so in spring I can sow or plant into it. I'm here today in a very chilly, frosty, exotic garden here at Wisley, and I'm joined by two of my colleagues from the advisory team, Michaela Freed and Jenny Bowden. Now, even in winter, we get a lot of inquiries of all manner, but uh, what's actually uh, at the top of the members list at the moment, Jenny? I would say pruning questions. People want to tidy up plants at this time of year. Sometimes it's actually to get rid of snow damage, in which case we'd say, yes, that's a really good idea to cut out any damaged branches and make sure it's a very clean cut, tidy up any rough edges. Um, Pruning in general, yes, if it's very cold, most things can be pruned in the winter when it comes to trees. Quite dense woods, that's absolutely fine. We would say leave roses because they're a lot more prone to damage. So we'd actually say hold off any rose pruning until uh, February is when we do most of ours. But here in the gardens, because we have so many fruit trees, the apple pruning starts about now and it's really only stopped by... um, the amount of cold that the staff can take um, so yeah we just continue right the way through into January and February because we've got a thousand apple trees there are a few things you need to uh, be worried about don't prune birches and aces as well as you move on into January the sap rises really really early so with aces and birch we'd actually say do that as the leaves drop or with aces even in July for gardeners generally over the winter they think about digging and so on I think it's very important if the ground is frozen not to turn frozen ground into the soil further because it will simply stay there for weeks if not months frozen so if the weather's very bad it's better to leave digging or mulching don't do it over frozen ground but uh, Kayla tree planting of course over the winter people will be thinking about deciduous trees and so on Um, What about tree planting? What what sort of things do people need to think about with regard to the weather? You can plant a tree at this time of year, but you wouldn't be able to plant it today when the ground is so frosty. Wait for a mild spell in the weather. Dig your hole, stake your tree. It will need to be watered, so you've got to be very mindful that if it's going to go a freezing cold that night, do not plant your tree because if you water it, the water will then freeze and freeze the roots. 
as the wind picks up here, I'm reminded of wind chill. And here around the exotic garden, of course, we have quite a high hedge, I guess, in places to eight or even ten feet. And I suppose wind is as much a problem as actual cold itself. So, I mean, what things, again, Jenny, can gardeners do to protect their plants against wind? Well, there's several ways in which wind can be damaging. There's a lot of evergreens really don't like it at all. For example, bay, if you've got a standard bay, popular plant, the bark cracks really easily, it desiccates and it cracks open. So it's a really good idea to put to wind a couple of layers of fleece around the trunk itself. And while you're about it, you could do the top as well and then open it all up when the weather warms up because you don't want the humidity in there. But the other way in which wind can be damaging is if evergreens dry out completely and then you get the wind added to that. So there's moisture being lost through the leaves, but it's not actually being replaced. So bamboo is an example of a plant which can just shrivel up and the leaves desiccate and it just doesn't have the defence of many other plants which drop their leaves. So when it's not frozen, especially if they're in containers, make sure that they get enough water. Well, on a very chilly day here at Wisley, I'd like to thank my colleagues, Michaela and Jenny, there for their insight into winter care. And uh, we'll certainly have to think a little bit about our winter care in this very chilly day, perhaps get back indoors. If you'd like to know more about protecting your plants in winter, have a look at the advice pages of our website. On the website, you can also find information and photographs of two rapidly growing threats to the traditional seasonal favourite, the chestnut. We visited the science teams to learn more about these worrying problems. Hello there, it's Andy Salisbury, one of the RHS entomologists, and I'm here with Matthew Cromie, a plant pathologist. Today we're asking you to spare a thought for the sweet chestnut tree, which is under the dual threat of a, a disease, a blight, and a gall wasp. Well, sweet chestnut blight is a pretty serious disease that was found in North America first some time ago, having arrived there from Asia, and it's pretty much devastated a lot of the trees in the US, maybe three and a half billion that's estimated. For a long time it wasn't found over here, but now it's been found in the UK, sadly. It was first found in 2011 in Warwickshire and also in East Sussex, all from the same source of plants, so it appears that it came in with the plants. They were found pretty quickly, the symptoms were pretty obvious, and so that outbreak was eradicated. But since then it's been found once or twice again. The next one was in Kent, 2016, again one tree, that had been planted in 2009. So a reasonably young plant, the owner found it quite quickly, spotted the unusual symptoms, alerted tree alert. That outbreak was able to be eradicated very quickly. Sadly, it's been found more recently in 2016 in Devon, where it's become a lot more established. The difficulty is once they get established, it's very, very difficult to eradicate an infection. So now in Devon, there's a, what's called a cordon sanitaire. So there's an area where sweet chestnuts can't be moved in or out to try and limit its spread to other places. So what does it look like? Well, it's an above-ground disease, so you're not looking at the roots, you'll find it on the trunks, and you'll find it on the bark of European sweet chestnut trees. generally gets through fissures or wounds to start with, so it needs a way of getting into the tree. If you've got grafted trees, quite often that's around where the graft is. Um, you get some callousing around the graft, and sometimes there's a little bit of a wound associated, and that's where the fungus can get in. Coppices or orchards, often it's at the base of the stem. Again, collars, where there's possibly a little bit of damage or a little bit of a, little bit of a fissure. Once it gets in, unfortunately, it does cause damage pretty quickly. It spreads very rapidly in infected bark. 
Um, so often the branches are girdled. Once the branch is girdled, it's restricting the flow of nutrients and water and so forth to the rest of the tree. So you get a sunken canker forming and you can get yellow, orange, whitish brown pustules of the fungus growing in there. They erupt through the bark and that's when they can then spread. If you've got young branches, then you'll find areas of, of, of a bright brown. So the normal bark will be a greenish colour, bright brown you'll see an area like that and then you'll see the damage gradually developing. So trying to pick up the disease as soon as possible is really important. As soon as you see it, the place to go to is Tree Alert, look at the Forestry Commission's website and it's important that that be notified as soon as possible because the longer you leave it, the more likely it is to spread to your neighbour's garden or to somewhere else. There are various sources of information. You can search the RHS website. We've got a, a profile on the disease. Forestry Commission and various other organisations have the information too. You can see photographs, you can see descriptions. If you're an RHS member, you can send us an inquiry. We can look at photographs, we can tell you it's worth contacting Tree Alert. But do it promptly, don't wait. All right, the, the second threat to sweet chestnuts at the moment is the Oriental Chestnut Gall Wasp. And this is a, a tiny wasp. The adult creature is only a, a couple of millimetres long and it's black. This lays its eggs in the developing leaves and buds of sweet chestnuts. Uh, you then get a gall developing the leaf, and this is a, a round spherical thing. It can cause uh, leaf distortion, and it's even obvious right the way through the winter. The leaves which have been infected stay on the tree, and you can see the swollen gall at the base of the leaf. Now, unlike the blight, the gall wasp is unlikely to cause the death of trees, but it can stunt young tree growth, and it can make the trees look a little bit unhealthy. In Italy, the gall wasp has actually caused a, a reduction in yield of chestnuts by about 80%. In the UK, we don't actually grow any chestnuts on the commercial scale, so we're only likely to see that, that problem here. But of course, it might be affecting our imports from places like Italy. The gall wasp itself was first spotted in Kent in 2016. Over 2017, it seemed to spread across London and it's now becoming pretty widespread in southeast England. There is no treatment for the gall wasp whatsoever. You can prune out to the affected areas, but of course, we all know chestnuts get up to quite a big tree, so it's, it's going to be impossible in many cases. And the gall wasp is something we're just going to have to uh, live with. These two problems, both the blight and the, and the gorwas, is a reminder to keep an eye on the health of our trees. If people do spot something unusual, to have a look at the Forestry Commission's Tree Alert website and report these occurrences, because hopefully if we get some of these things early enough, we can keep them out. There's more information and photos showing the problems our science team described on our website, rhs.org.uk forward slash new PD risks. Now, as promised, a treat for wildlife lovers. Birds are a pleasure to watch and listen to throughout the year. But in winter, many foreign visitors arrive on our shores in search of food and relative warmth. Gardeners can play a vital role providing shelter and sustenance for birds on their plots. And there are many beautiful species to spot, even in the most unlikely environments. We joined RSPB expert Adrian Thomas on a bird watching expedition in central London to find out more. And despite the constant background hum of trains, planes and automobiles, birdsong can be heard. My name's Helen Bostock. I'm RHS Senior Horticultural Advisor based at the RHS Gardens at Wisley. I perhaps should just say as a train goes past in the background that of course today we've come into a very central London location at Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens. So there's trains coming and going, but even in such a busy urban environment as this, there's plenty of wildlife if you just are able to stop and have a little bit of a look. Today I've got Adrian Thomas here to speak with us about birds in winter. So 
Adrian, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I've worked for the RSPB for about 16 years now, but I've been fascinated by birds, wildlife and gardening for all of my life. So it's a bit of a cold winter morning, isn't it? It is, but even in this urban environment, we've, we've been hearing goldfinches, I can hear magpies. We get these wonderful birds, the red wings and field fairs, coming over by the thousand from Scandinavia. Too cold for them over there in the winter and they come across here to feed on berries, hedgerows and, and out in the fields. So even in the most unprepossessing of places, there are birds to be found at this time of year. Adrian, this might sound like a slightly odd question, but when we talk about garden birds, just, just what is it we mean by that? It's a good question, isn't it? Because you're right, we do all talk about garden birds and basically... They're the birds of the wider countryside that have somehow managed to make a home in amongst the human environment, that have been brave enough, that have been bold enough. You look at something like the blackbird, 150 years ago, that wasn't a bird of gardens, but it's made the successful transition. We're seeing evolution in our time as birds change from being a bird of, of the wider countryside or woodlands or scrublands. Some of them are making the change and going, you know, that garden habitat, quite like that. So only in the last 10 years or so we have seen a massive increase in the number of goldfinches and I think that as time goes on we will probably see some other species take to gardens as well. When we talk about garden birds some people might say well okay yes I've got blackbirds, I've got robins but actually I've also got something a bit more exotic. I've got these green parroty things. What do you think those are? <laughs> and it's only people at the moment really in London Surrey and parts of Kent who will have ring-necked parakeets. They certainly came from the cage bird trade and they are expanding very very rapidly and are becoming in some people's gardens a very obvious and loud presence. We're talking 30,000 possibly 40,000 parakeets living wild in the UK, a bird that originates in India and Asia. It's it, astonishing. It's incredible, isn't it? They're able to survive cold winters? So I think it's very possible, particularly with climate change, that we will see the parakeet able to survive in many places in the UK. And it will be fascinating to see what other changes happen in our, our bird life. In particular, those birds that are, are really hit by cold winters, the insect eaters, things like gold crests and wrens and long-tailed tits, well, we are seeing an increase in gardens of those species, and as gardeners you can help them as well. So I think in the future more people are going to see more species in their garden here in the UK if they do the right things for them. So, what are those right things? I know this time of year, with the leaves off a lot of our trees, it's a really fantastic time for gardeners to get outside and actually spot birds rather than just hear them. But can they do something more? Is this a good time of year to be putting up bird boxes, for example? It's a perfect season to put them up. Birds are already prospecting for nest sites, even if they're not building the nest at the moment. And what we've seen is that things like blue tits and grey tits have done wonderfully from all of those nest boxes that people have put up, the one with the little, little hole in them. What we need people to do now is expand their range of designer Desres homes to accommodate house sparrows, starlings, swifts, house martins, those are the species that need our extra help, particularly because of all of the repair work that people do to their soffits and their, and their roof spaces. Those birds just don't have homes anymore and there are special nest boxes just for them.
I happened to notice just when wandering around this morning that uh, behind us here we've got a couple of lovely big mature crabapple trees in this park and they've still got some, some little crabapples on them and is it that sort of thing that these, these winter thrushes and other birds are interested in? Uh, absolutely it is and, and I think it's really interesting that gardening is providing those supplementary food sources that for many birds they're quite difficult to find in the countryside and I'm going to take us on to, to a Scandinavian bird that has been in the UK in quite good numbers this year but is something that people get really excited about and that's the waxwing and it genuinely does have little waxy knobs on its wings it's about the size of a starling it's peach coloured highwayman's mask and this big floppy crest going on and they've become known a bit as the supermarket car park bird because it seems that the municipal planting that goes on around supermarket car parks is one of the last places that hangs on to berries late in the winter and that's what the waxwings need. But it's funny what you say, Adrian, about the uh, car park effect and the fact that it's the trees, it's the green stuff within the car park that's really providing for our wildlife. I think with our, the work that we do at the RHS, we're really trying to get people to recognise that in a day when things like parking is really in high demand, that actually there is still a little space that can be made for our wildlife. But that's quite a worrying trend. I mean, we have the phrase commoner garden, meaning, you know, species that we'd expect to see on a daily basis, but they no longer are commoner garden. Where I live, I can't remember the last time I saw a house sparrow. So are there any other species perhaps we ought to be concerned about as gardeners? There are. So one that I have a particular passion for is the spotted flycatcher. It's a summer visitor from Africa. And if you go back 20, 30, 40 years, many a garden with a nice bit of trees, nice bit of climbers growing up the house, bit of ivy, they'd have a pair of spotted flycatchers. And the kind of levels of declines that we're seeing in some of these species is pushing to 80-90% declines. Where there were 10, there are now only one or two of those species left, which is quite astonishing in such a short time period, but where I firmly believe that there are things that we can do as gardeners that can really help them. Now it can start with something as simple as feeding the garden birds, that really is the most simple thing uh, that people can do and you can get very immediate effects from it. But I'm a passionate believer that it's also what you do in terms of what you grow within the garden. A green garden, a garden full of plants, is by definition for me a better garden for wildlife than one which has got hard landscaping throughout. So the more that people can plant, yes you can make very specific plant choices in there, you can grow native trees, you can make sure there are plants with seeds and with berries, but for me it's just a garden full of plants is a garden for nature. If gardeners want to be feeding their garden birds in winter, are there particular types of food stuffs that they should be putting out or things to avoid? Don't feed salted food, so that extends to salted bacons, salted nuts. They just can't cope with that in their system. And once you've done that, then really you can move on to a wide range of, of foodstuffs. There's been a lot of development in bird seed mixes. If you buy a cheap one and your neighbour is feeding something better, you probably won't get many birds down to it. So, so buy good quality food and it's a real investment both for you and for the birds. That is an interesting point though because I guess what we're doing is encouraging uh, a lot of birds to come into quite a small area. Are there any problems with that? Any diseases that pass through foods or maybe through the water? You're absolutely right to uh, draw attention to that. What we've seen quite 
dramatically in, in the last five, six, seven years, a disease called trichomoniasis jumped from pigeons and doves over into particularly greenfinches. In only that short time period, we have seen greenfinch populations drop in some areas by 40, 50, 60%. It is being quite alarming. And this is where good hygiene around your bird feeding areas means that you're not killing with kindness. That is the big risk if you don't keep those feeders clean. The best advice these days, and this is the latest research that's come out, is that the transmission of this trichomonas um, organism is when birds feed on the ground. So feeding in these dangling seed feeders is by far the best way to try and reduce the risk of this disease transmission. That's really interesting. Thank you, Adrian. We stood in, in a little circle of, uh, well, an avenue of tr bare trees here. But I hear that sort of tinkling type rippling sound. Or, that, 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 I think, is becoming quite, quite a common sound in gardens. What, what bird is that? Yeah, that's, that's the goldfinch. Yeah, and that tinkling of the bell is, is very diagnostic for the goldfinch, but it does take a little while to get your ear into some of the bird sounds. But I think if we stop and listen and we're getting to the point even though we're still in winter birds are starting to sing their hormones are picking up they're going okay the days are lengthening let's start trying to set out a territory attract a mate and defend it from from all comers actually that's a really interesting thing because this business of the dawn chorus yeah. obviously happening early in the morning uh, that, that doesn't happen year round is, is that what you're saying yes that, that's right so uh, Peak time for the dawn chorus is probably from about late February through to June time and it is to do with male birds proclaiming their territory saying and uh, you females you uh, surely you'll love a little bit of this come and live with me other males steer well clear because this is mine and that's what the song is about it's a twofold meaning behind that song. So it really is a sort of valentine serenade finches and and different tit species they can actually group together and, and act as a unified flock for feeding is that right it, that's absolutely right starlings think of those and how they gather together in huge flocks and what they're doing is they're both sharing the security of being amongst large numbers but they're also then able to uh, effectively communicate with each other of where the best feeding is those huge flocks of starlings that you see gather at dusk it's thought that a starling will look at the other starlings around it, spot one which looks healthy and go, I'm going to follow you tomorrow morning when we leave the roost because you probably know where the best food is. Helen Bostock and Adrian Thomas. Remember, the RSPB Big Garden Bird Watch runs from the 27th to the 29th of January. Registration opens on the 13th of December. And you can hear more about how to make your garden more bird-friendly in the first RHS Gardening Podcast of 2018. Now, if you're a regular visitor to Wisley or a regular podcast listener, you'll probably know that our multi-million pound investment programme in the garden is progressing rapidly. New displays and garden areas are taking shape, defunct buildings have been raised to the ground, and new facilities fit for an exciting future in horticultural research are under construction. It's an exciting time for staff and visitors alike, though sometimes a bit noisy. One new development is a science wing. Jenny Bowden met up with a former Wisley student on a return visit to the garden to hear about some of the exciting developments taking place and to reminisce on his life as a student in the garden over 50 years ago. 
It is such an exciting time at the RHS at the moment on all the sites, but the development of Wisley that's taking place at the moment is, is really a little bit of where we see past, present and future really coming together in the best of ways. The wonderful arts and crafts style laboratory here at Wisley has always been the focus of study and research for our scientists and students. And today I'm with John Watson, who was a student in the 1950s. 59 to... Uh, um... To 60. Lovely. And yeah. also Dean Morrison, who's a Heritage Lottery Fund Development Manager. And we're just going to have a little look at the past, present and future of the building here at Wisley and also the future for the whole site of Wisley. So, Dean, why is this such an important building, the one we're in now? Well, this is, this is an amazing building. We think it's the only arts and crafts laboratory in the entire world, possibly. And of course, it's been the nerve centre for the RHS for over 100 years now as a sort of a centre to explore plants and horticulture and really as a sort of a nerve centre for horticulture for the whole of the United Kingdom. What's actually going to happen to it in the future? Well, we've got really exciting plans here at Wisley. Um, the RHS are investing £60 million in projects across Wisley. And we're very, very grateful to the Heritage Lottery Fund because they've given us an initial first round pass for £4.8 million towards that project and in particularly towards acknowledging and understanding and sharing our heritage. People perhaps don't realise when they come to Wisley and see this fabulous, iconic arts and crafts building that it is actually a purpose-built laboratory and always has been. It's not a stately home. It's not a, meant to sort of look beautiful for a very rich man or anything like that. It's built as a working place for scientists. The sad thing about it is that in all the years we've had it, the public have never been allowed into it because it's a working building. But as part of our new plans, we're building a new centre for science and horticulture to give our scientists modern facilities. And then really excitingly, for the first time, we'll be able to bring the public into this building and understand how it functions and all of the great things that go on here. How will people actually experience it? What's actually going to happen here? What will they see? Well, the first building we're putting in place is what we're calling our new welcome building, which will be the grand entrance into Wisley. And that will be mainly a modern building and will have has our cafes and plant centre and everything in a new way. What that allows us to do is to strip away all of the accumulated clutter of kind of shops and sheds and things that have grown up around the grand old building over the years and pull that back and reveal it so you can see it in all its glory as soon as you come to Wisley and then we'll be putting in sort of level accesses into the ground floor of the building so people will go around and have uh, tours of it and with exhibitions and uh, we're doing lots of interesting work developing up all the interpretation for that. One of the, the things we're doing which um, John might remember there was a, a purpose-built lecture theatre as part of this laboratory building with a raked floor so students could peer over while the horticulture of the past were showing techniques for grafting and such things, a bit like a medical theatre in a way. That's now been kind of divided up into offices, and but all of the structure is there. So we're going to reveal that. And one of the first things you do when you walk into the building now is to, as you come in through the grand entrance hall is to walk straight into the lecture theatre as restored as it was in the past, and watch a short film about Wisley and our heritage. Wow. Well, I am going to whiz, 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 whiz back through history, a few decades. And John, it's lovely to have you here. Thank a you. student from Wisley from, when was it again? 
1959 to 1960. I well remember that lecture hall. All of us had to give our very first lecture ever there. Some people got through it very well. I remember I rambled on and on about irises until someone stopped me. So nothing's changed. You know, my lecture <laughs> style is exactly the same. So but when one poor devil went on and... He was nothing but a comedy show for the rest. It must have been terrible for him. <laughs> and so how has it changed since you were here as a student, this sort of building, the laboratory itself? Well, I mean, it seems like a completely different place. I fastened onto anything I recognise <laughs> oh. just to prove that I hadn't lost my memory. So how would you say that um, your time here as a student at Wisley went on to influence what you went on to do? Oh, a great deal part of a whole cycle. I was 15, a bored kid. And then I discovered in the school library a book called My Rock Garden by a certain Reginald Farrer who happened to be one of the great plant hunters. Right, I'd always been interested in plants, gone out looking for orchids when I was um, old enough to know what they were. And I'd also collected a crocus from a bomb site when I was very small, which was my first plant collecting ever. So Wisley distilled your yeah. interest further. Yeah, well, I mean, then I had to work on nurseries um, before here. And that, for me, is like the rim of horticulture. But what I needed to do was to get at the hub to find out who was important, who was influential, who could advise me. And that was what Wisley did for me as much as anything. Did being a student at Wisley instill personal uh, virtues or disciplines? Because I think, for me, having been a student at Wisley, it does make you think in a certain way. Mm. Or... The people, co-students I met here, became very important in my life afterwards. It was greatly influential as an experience, yes. Now, with Christmas rapidly approaching, there are lots of festive displays and activities in all four of our RHS gardens including spectacular seasonal illuminations at Wisley, Harlow Car and Rosemore. So why not extend an afternoon visit into a walk in a winter wonderland? What's more, you can take advantage of a special reduced entry price after 3pm. And if you're thinking of last minute Christmas presents, how about treating your loved ones to a day out to remember at our world famous flower shows? See cutting edge design at Chelsea, enjoy plants galore at Hampton Court or revel in the history and beauty of Chatsworth. Details of all the RHS events can be found at rhs.org.uk forward slash event search. Well, that's all for today, I'm afraid. We'll return in a fortnight with a look back at our highlights from 2017. Until then, from all of us in the RHS Gardening Podcast team, goodbye. And if it's not too early, a very happy Christmas. <laughs> <laughs>